this attack comes from Taiwan. Now that sounds like something having to do with missiles and jet fighters, but it's not. That's right. In today's Taiwan Insider, an incredible story of soft power coming to you from the small island nation of Taiwan. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's first take a look at what's been on our radar this week. Zero. Tuesday was the first day in over a month with no new COVID-19 cases in Taiwan. The landmark Grand Hotel in Taipei marked the occasion in lights. No new cases emerged on Thursday either. 367 Taiwanese nationals who returned from China's Hubei province in late March have been released from quarantine. That's after they completed a mandatory 14-day period in isolation. They had returned on two charter flights organized by the Straits Exchange Foundation, a semi-official Taiwan body. The Labor Ministry has offered 10,000 temporary jobs to part-time workers affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of these jobs are related to fighting the outbreak, things like distributing masks, taking temperatures, and educating the public on disease prevention. The Labor Ministry hopes to offer 60,000 more temp jobs soon. Vending machines are helping people buy their allotted number of masks. Customers need to bring their national health insurance card and a form of cashless pay. The machines will be available in all of Taipei's districts next week. Worshippers celebrated the birthday of Mazu, the goddess of the sea, on Wednesday. She's one of the most important deities in Taiwan. Although the annual procession was canceled, some celebrations, like this one in the eastern town of Suao, went ahead. The only difference was that all participants had their temperatures taken and wore masks. Under the radar, and under the sea this week, it's the annual spawning of coral off the coast of Taiwan. This annual spectacle often coincides with the birthday of the sea goddess Mazu. And now for our words of the week, Andrew, ready to guess? Yes. Pride, power, police. Power! Oh. You're right. <laughs> we have power here now. Well, we're going to be talking about how Taiwan's been using soft power to deal with challenges like being excluded from the World Health Organization. Excellent. Are you ready for my word? Yes. All right. Zodiac. No. <laughs> Zeal? Zero. Zero, that's right. We have zero <laughs> cases today. It's so exciting. You know, I figured as soon as I, you saw zero, is the Z, you would get it, right? <laughs> no, I didn't get So it. we're so excited. This week, Taiwan saw for the first time zero new cases of coronavirus. That was on Tuesday. And then we just heard again today on Thursday, again, zero new cases yes. of coronavirus. And did you see the Grand Hotel next to RTI that was all lit up? I want to show you a picture of that again. So that was lit up uh, on Tuesday night in celebration. Of course, we don't want to celebrate too quickly. Uh, we want to still remain vigilant so that we keep this under control. Yes, very exciting. Let's put these on the shelf. All right. Now, I want to start off today by telling you about a hashtag that's gone viral in Taiwan this past week. It's hashtag this attack comes from Taiwan. Now, it may sound like it's about violence or missiles or something scary or dangerous, but actually it's about this. People have been sharing images of scenic spots and foods from Taiwan. It's a soft power attack in response to accusations from overseas. Look at that. Oh, I love those photos. And a crowdfunding campaign took this even further. 
They took out a full-page ad in the New York Times on Tuesday. In less than a day, about 27,000 people donated over twice the amount of money needed to fund that ad. So what prompted all of those colorful pictures and now a full-page ad in the New York Times? Well, it was none other than the head of the World Health Organization, or WHO, who said that he'd been the target of attacks online and even racial slurs from Taiwan. This attack came from Taiwan. This is the comment that prompted a response from Taiwan. And here's the ad that ran in the New York Times on Tuesday. There's also an internet version. At the top of the design, it asks, who can help? It's a play on words. You might recognize that's the same color and font used by the World Health Organization, or WHO. Down below, the answer to who can help is Taiwan. And the text reads, in a time of isolation, we choose solidarity. And at the bottom, who can isolate Taiwan? No one, because we are here to help. Hashtag Taiwan can help. Hashtag Taiwan is helping. One of the people behind the crowdfunding campaign, Lin Zuyi, explains the design. At the top, you see what looks like a hole that you might fall into. Down by Taiwan, you see a door. If you compare the two, it's an expression of our contribution to the world. That's something that the world can judge for itself. President Tsai expressed her support in a post on Facebook. She said, Taiwan cannot rest on its laurels. We must use the spirit of Taiwan can help to share our experience with the world. Not only is Taiwan not a member of the WHO, during Tsai's term, China has blocked Taiwan from observing the World Health Assembly. Taiwanese officials have been campaigning to join the WHO, but they insist that they never sanctioned an online attack on the WHO head. Meanwhile, the WHO responded to the New York Times ad with a 13-point statement giving examples of how it's interacted with Taiwan. But Taiwan's representative office in Geneva said the statement was misleading the world to believe that the WHO has maintained full exchanges with Taiwan. So why does Taiwan feel ignored by the WHO? Well, the WHO has rejected 70% of Taiwan's requests to join in its technical meetings. Also, earlier on Saturday, Taiwan's health minister released an email that paints a clear picture on the situation. And that's the topic of today's Taiwan Explain. In today's Taiwan Explain, I'm going to show you how Taiwan responded to the threat of the new coronavirus much earlier than the World Health Organization did. All right, Nellie, we have a minute on the clock. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, go. Okay, this past Saturday, Taiwan's health minister revealed an email that Taiwan sent to the WHO on December 31st. It talks about seven atypical pneumonia cases reported in Wuhan, China. The cases were believed not to be SARS. Though it wasn't a direct warning, officials say that health experts would know that the following phrase implies human-to-human transmission. Cases have been isolated for treatment. Taiwan acted on that concern, but the WHO ignored it. As we see from this timeline, on January 1st, Taiwan begins health inspections of passengers from Wuhan, but on the 10th, the WHO does not recommend those inspections. On the 12th, Taiwan sends experts to Wuhan. On the 14th, the WHO said there is no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. On the 20th, Taiwan starts its national response to fight the new coronavirus, but the WHO waited until January 30th to declare a global health emergency. Former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley says the American people have every right to ask the WHO questions. We... (laughs) <laughs> she said, we deserve to know why we didn't listen to Taiwan, but listen to China.
All right, excellent. That's hard to do in a minute. <laughs> yeah, a lot of information in there today. <laughs> now, I did see something very recently. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump has said that he's going to cut funding for the WHO. And I know that the U.S. is one of the largest, if not the largest, um, right. sponsor. Um, right? He said that he's going to cut for two or three months pending a review of how the WHO handled the crisis. Now, we don't know if this is going to go through because the U.S. Congress, the Democrats are against it. There's a lot of criticism from other foreign leaders, even Bill Gates, who was a major donor to the WHO. Yes. But, you know, the WHO should be held accountable. And a lot of people, about a million, um, almost a million, actually have started um, an online petition calling for him to step down. This is the head of the WHO? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they are trying to hold the WHO accountable in different ways. And we'll see how that plays out. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. And that's Taiwan Explained for this week. So what do people in Taiwan think of the problems with the WHO? Well, I spoke to a top news show host, Catherine Zhang, and asked her what she thought of the New York Times ad. I think the ad is excellent. It's really excellent. You know what? First, um, it really kind of simple, and it really kind of bring your heart to it. Um, during this isolation, um, it said that we want to be solidarity. That means we want to work together. Um, they also said you cannot really isolate Taiwan. Why? Because Taiwan is here to help. And Taiwan knows how you suffer because we have been isolated for, for many years and we are kind of devastating for the stars of 2003. So I think this ad is very successful. You know, New York is now kind of devastating about the whole thing. And if you put it on the New York Times, um, that would that would mean something, I think. That would mean something to um, the American people, I think so. We also talk about the WHO director and his claims that the people in Taiwan have a racist campaign against him. Uh, I'm kind of uh, disappointed that Tendrils was say something about that because I feel that he is kind of uh, worried about what he did or he know what he did wrong. So he just bring up the idea and saying that, oh, all of you, you just discriminate me. It's a racial thing. But he didn't understand that in Taiwan, we don't have such a problem as racial. I mean, we don't, we don't criticize you as you're black or something, you know? So the whole thing is out of, out of imagination. I, I, I'm kind of disappointed that he would say anything like that. That yes. means, yeah, that means he, he's not really capable of that position. That's what I think. And also Taiwan did very well, and uh, he kind of got a pressure from China, and he kind of maybe cover up for the Communist Party, or maybe he really did receive the letter from our, uh, our, our Taiwan government, and he just ignored it. So uh, I think he had a lot of problems. I also asked Catherine why she recently launched the new English news program called The View with Catherine Zhang. I know that I'm not a native speaker, but I see myself as the number one anchor in Taiwan, and I want to express my point of view, which is the Taiwanese point of view to the world. Um, it's really, uh, I'm, I'm kind of shocked that a lot of people, um, they, they don't speak Mandarin, that maybe they're in, um, in, in Africa, they're in the States. They send message to me, they say they uh, watch a show and they really love it. They think they can understand what's going on in Taiwan. Well, you know what, that I, I've been working as an anchor and uh, host like for how many years? Like uh, 20 something? Yeah. It's really 
below my age, 20 something, 30 years old. But you know, I, I never thought that uh, I've changed language and I can reach so many people. So that's a good thing. The View with Catherine Zhang is available every weeknight on YouTube. And we'll also have the full interview that Natalie did with Catherine also available on YouTube and on Facebook. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, I want to talk about the color pink. Now, last week's segment, we talked about how there's a shortage of face masks worldwide, which means people can't really get picky with them. But on April 12th, the Central Epidemic Command Center held its daily press conference, and one reporter asked a question which caught a lot of attention and turned a lot of heads. Check it out. So the problem is, young school children, particularly boys, don't really want to wear pink face masks to school because they're afraid they're going to get picked on by their classmates. Now, the CECC knows that it needs to lead by example. For instance, they separated each other during their press conferences when they implemented social distancing measures. So people were touched when Health Minister Chen Shizong and his team of CECC leaders came out the very next day all wearing pink masks. Their message very clearly was, pink's not so bad. Just when you thought you couldn't like him anymore, he goes off and does something like this. You're so likable, Minister Chen. You're so lovable. Anyway, it's true, pink is the new hotness for 2020, much like neon was in the 90s. But what's more important is that the health leadership actually ignited a campaign to remove the stigma from the color pink. And oh boy, did people jump on that. You have corporations, TV stations, political parties, government agencies, schools, museums, travel agencies, and even your favorite Taiwan news show, Rocking Pink Logos. Now, I haven't done a Leslie Liao pick of the week in a while, and that's my bad. I dropped the ball, but I got a doozy for you this week. This image comes from the Coast Guard Administration of Taiwan, and in it they ask, what's wrong with pink masks? And they have all the roles of the Coast Guard's rockin' pink masks, boy band style. Isn't that just great? And for those of you who just want to get saturated by the color pink, I have a collection of hashtags here that you can go and log into your social media and go look up and just get completely saturated with those pink hues. You have hashtag colors don't have gender, hashtag colors are genderless, hashtag colors have no gender, hashtag pink mask men, and my favorite, hashtag pink is the color of heroes. Now, to any boys that might be watching who are a little afraid of wearing pink masks, I have a fun fact for you. Did you know that, in fact, pink used to be a boy color? The reason why is because men used to wear a lot of red, and boys were seen as just little men, so they just wore a lighter shade of red, which is pink. And I can't lie, guys, I'm not even going to front. I'm a big fan of pink. There's nothing wrong with it. That's all I have for you this week. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. And Andrew and Natalie, once again... Stay away from each other, please. All right. Thanks a lot, Leslie. 
And as you can see, I have no problem with wearing pink masks either, Natalie. It looks nice on you. It matches your outfit. Thank you. And I you know, want to say I've been wearing this <laughs> since before they were even popular. Actually, we like pink, as you can tell. Now it's time for our lightning round news quiz, and you can play along at home if you like. Andrew, you have 60 seconds. Oh, okay. To answer as many questions as you can All for right. the news this week. Okay, All I'll right. Are you ready? No. <laughs> Never. <laughs> okay, okay, ready, yeah. go. What new way could Taiwan people get masks this week? Uh, through a vending machine. Very good. What was the Grand Hotel celebrating with special lights on Tuesday? Zero new cases of coronavirus. Right. What are some new places you need to wear a face mask now? Um, in, uh, oh, geez, department stores. Right. Also night markets, traditional markets, post office, and next week banks. Okay. How many times have U.S. military aircraft flown near Taiwan in the past three weeks? Three weeks, ten times? That's right. Oh, wow. <laughs> Starting Saturday, due to stricter restrictions, people traveling back from the U.S. and Europe might have to do what? Uh, do quarantine at an official center. That's right. What's Taiwan's baseball league doing to make it more accessible to global viewers this week? Oh, they're doing English podcasts. That's right. Taiwan donated $10 million, uh, not $10 million, $10 million masks <laughs> to countries around the world in its first round. What are, how many are they donating in their second round? Uh, six million. That's right. What did President Tsai have in common with six other heads of state who were commended by Forbes for having the best coronavirus response? I know this one. They're <laughs> all women. That's right. Did I get them all right today? I think, I think you did. <laughs> and this is what the article said. I mean, I was really proud when I read this, cause, I guess because I'm a woman. So. Yeah. <laughs> they said they've led with clarity, compassion, and decisiveness rather than, quote, denial, anger, and disingenuousness seen in other uh, not female leaders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I saw an article on CNN about that as well. Also yes, about they highlighted that. So women I are think, doing a good job leading us right. through the coronavirus. I think women, I mean, they're, they're not as political, at least those women weren't mm -hmm. as political in dealing with the crisis. They just face it head on. Mm -hmm. And they're doing a great job. Dealing with it as a, a health issue rather right. than a political issue. That's, That's right. Good. All right, so good job. Thank you. Very good job, Andrew. <laughs> and that is our news quiz for the week. Well, we sure hope you enjoyed this uh, attack from Taiwan. <laughs> Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw 
Listen to the real Taiwan. Taiwan today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan today. I'm Natalie So. Today we get to hear the perspective of a coronavirus patient in Taiwan. Douglas Habecker is the co-publisher of Compass Magazine, a Taizong city guide, and the head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Taizong. He is also Taiwan's 50th case of COVID-19. He got infected with the coronavirus by his American friends who were visiting Taiwan from Washington State. After he developed chills, a cough, and fever, he went to the hospital and tested positive for COVID-19. He was treated in a negative pressure isolation room and shares with us about his treatment and recovery. The treatment was a combination. Uh, initially, of course, they weren't sure what I had, and they they had started me on antibiotics already. And I know that you know a lot of my friends have said, well, antibiotics don't treat the virus. But I think it was they're looking. I've heard about this from other people as well. It's kind of a two pronged approach because you do have a pneumonia in your chest. That's going on at the same time you have that you're infected with this virus, uh, this you know COVID-19. So they were giving me anti um, medication, which I know is quite common, to alleviate the symptoms. It come with a combination of antibiotics, and I, I assume the antibiotics perhaps are to prevent further infection or complication from the pneumonia. Um, and so those were the two, and I, and then of course the medication for my cough, which had never, which was never actually very serious, but they were giving me some of that as well. The treatment, I think, was fairly effective, and of course, I think that COVID-19 is one of those things. There's no cure for it. You just have to get through it and and stay. You know, the the medications there to help alleviate the symptoms, uh, and and then of course you rest, and your body, you know, develops antibodies against this virus. But you know, by the my final week in the hospital, it really had come down to a, a very very uh, sporadic cough. I mean, I again, I emphasize very occasional. It wasn't bad. And of course, then um, there was a little bit of pressure in my lungs uh, because of, I think, the effects of this this pneumonia. It, although, and I, I say this to everybody, is that I never had a breathing problem. Uh, even taking deep breaths for me was not an issue, for which I'm very thankful because I know that uh, there have been people with this virus who have been had severe complications uh, with breathing. That's why we, you know, hear a lot about these ventilators. But fortunately, I did not have that problem. So, how many days were you in the hospital? Uh, a total, uh, I think it was 19 days. I was in the hospital, but it's funny because the last few days, two or three days, um, actually, I was already cleared. They'd already decided that I was, I was fine. But they, they were just waiting for the central government. The, I guess it was the CECC to sign the document to actually signature the document and send it down so that the hospital could officially release me from the hospital. So I had to wait an additional two or three days in the hospital while that document was finalized and sent down. So I read in your Taipei Times article that you had got tested three times um, and it was negative three times before they let you out, right? Right, right. That's a government regulation here. And, and I think, you know, of course, there's a lot we're learning about this virus around the world as we go along. But I, I think, you know, some, I've had people come to me and say, well, I've heard people in, you know, a few cases where people left the hospital and then they were, they seem to get sick again or something. And I, I, everything I've read seems to indicate that people, some countries or some cases, people have been released when their symptoms disappeared or 
they were only tested perhaps once and allowed to go home. And oh. then of course, perhaps they were not completely uh, fine. They still had the virus. So I think Taiwan has done a wonderful job in that they're very, very careful about this. I had to, the rule here is that you have to get three negative consecutive tests. And, and so it was funny because they tested me first, the first time they, I got a negative test, I was happy, but then I got my second negative test. And then I got apprehensive because I thought, uh-oh, what, what if this third test is positive, then we start all over again. <laughs> but, but of course, fortunately, that didn't happen in my case. But it shows the thoroughness of the government is they want three negative tests in a row. And then, of course, it has to go, still go to discussion uh, on the, I think, the local and the central level. They have to look at the case and say, well, here's, here are the details. Do we, do we allow this person to go home? Are they officially coronavirus free? And, and so I think it is a very thorough process. And how else did officials uh, contact you? I mean, did they uh, ask you about all your contacts over the past month? How did that work? So as soon as that first test came back that said I was a, a weak positive at the beginning, uh, before they even had the second test, they already started contact the, the local government health bureau personnel started calling me and, and saying, okay, we need to go over your contact history over the last two weeks, basically, or, or longer. And so they, in the course of a, a series of phone calls over the next two days, they reviewed pretty much everything that I could remember. And of course, I was able to recall quite a bit. I had my calendar book and I was able to look at where I'd met, who I'd met, where I'd gone. Um, and of course, they wanted to follow up with these people. So then they also had to know well, how do, I, how do we reach these people? Where do they live? Or do they have a phone number or something that we can reach them? Because they have to follow up. And in some cases, uh, starting with the people I work with, they had to have a mandatory quarantine. Not everybody was quarantined. I think it really, they have some sort of gauge for judging who gets quarantined and who doesn't. I think in some cases, people I had had much briefer contact with were followed up with by the government, but then they were simply told, uh, you need to monitor your health. Uh, if there's any any issues, if you see anything, you need to contact us immediately. And so they they did a very, very good job at that. And uh, the friends that had visited me from the United States who had uh, infected me, they were also followed up via me. And then later on, we established, the, the, the local officials established a direct link to them via me um, so that they could follow up with them as well in terms of, you know, what flights that you take into Taiwan and leave in Ta from Taiwan. Of course, they want to know that. In fact, right down to where were you sitting in the airplane? They wanted to know they were, they'd spent time in Taipei. Where had you gone in Taipei? Who had you seen up there? So they followed up directly with them as well. So overall, I thought they did a, a wonderful job. And I, I really want to emphasize something, and that is, this was a very stressful time, obviously. I just found out I had coronavirus. I'm in the hospital. And through entire this entire process, I, I interacted with uh, the local officials that had to make these phone calls, uh, I just felt they were so understanding. They were very calm. They were very polite. Uh, they didn't put a ton of, you know, they didn't put all this pressure on me. I just, and they were very friendly and, and supportive. And I, I, I really can't say enough about that because I, I think my guess is that there are other countries where that doesn't happen, right? When the people come in and, and you're being treated almost as a, as a criminal, you know, being interrogated. That, that never yeah, that never happened here. Um, I, I just felt like, in fact, 
even after I came out of the hospital, they had to have, I had to sign off on a document. I felt like we were almost old friends by that time because <laughs> they had, it, the interaction had been so positive. Oh, that's good to hear. Well, I think Taiwan has done a terrific job of, of you know, um, taking care of people and keeping the virus um, contained as much as possible. How are yes. your friends doing, those few friends of yours who are traveling? They're, they're doing well. Um, I just checked up on them the uh, last night, in fact. Um, one of them still has a bit of a cough and, and she's isolated. Um, and, and it's actually, an, it, the chain of infection goes beyond them because it turns out my friend who wasn't feeling well the night I saw him had seen his mother in the United States who was mm -hmm. the first one to actually test positive for COVID-19. Fortunately, all of them are doing okay. Um, and one of them actually, even though she was tested positive, she was completely, she never got sick. So, um, Fortunately, they're, they're all doing fine. And I think that that's, a, that's something I'm very happy about. And I have to, I might add that I'm, I'm extremely happy that, that to my knowledge and what I've been informed, I did not infect anybody else while I was sick either. So that's, oh, a, that's, that's a huge load off of my back as well. That's wonderful. I think the um, figure that if you have a 15 minute contact with someone that one might need to be quarantined is, did they tell you how they um, figure that out? They didn't give me an exact standard, and, and frankly, at the time, I wasn't going to interrogate them too much about <laughs> I was kind of just leaving it to them to decide right. how to handle that. I, I think, you know, this is a very tricky situation because you have, you know, the doctors told me later on I had one of the fastest recovery times uh, to date on record in Taiwan. And, and also, I, I apparently didn't infect anyone else, despite the fact that I had had some fairly significant face time with people. I think there's other factors. We discuss this a bit with the doctor and me, and I've read about it as well, is there's things like what they call virus load. You know, how much of the virus are you carrying? Um, which mm. sounds kind of strange, but it is a factor I've read about. Um, some people have high virus loads and some people have low virus loads. So I think that could be a, a factor as well in terms of how infectious you are or how, I don't know, perhaps even how sick you get. I'm not sure on that. But yeah, so I, I do think that, but I was never informed about a specific standard, although I do know my entire staff, the, the company I work with was, was, had to go into quarantine. Did you, do you usually wear a mask? And were you wearing um, a mask while you were sick? I, when I initially got sick, I was not wearing a mask except for places when I was in public areas and I felt like there was a lot of people around. Prior to all of this, I, I was not wearing a mask because, you know, it was funny. In the in the very earliest days of this this crisis, the the Taiwan government was actually telling people that if you're out and about and you're healthy, you don't have to wear a mask. I mean, I mean there was a public service yeah, announcement that. saying this, and so you know, and I was one of those people who kind of felt like, well, you know, that 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 makes sense. Uh, it's probably not necessary, and you know, of course when I was spending that day with my American friends, visiting American friends, I didn't wear a mask. I, I kind of wish I had now, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, none of us were wearing masks. So at the time I, I was not, however, of course, once I got into the hospital uh, around my care, my providers, uh, you know, the nurses and doctor, whenever they come to my room, I would put on my mask. And of course, since leaving the hospital, I've been very, very careful about wearing the mask every time I step out of my home. Because, I mean, if many, as many people pointed out, it's not so much about being infected by other people, but infecting others. Now, I am coronavirus free, but, you know, I just feel like 
I don't even want to take that chance of anything. I, I just don't want to have think about it. I don't want to feel any any guilt about it, you know, anything. So I'm just going to wear a mask whenever I go out. And, I, I, and of course, that's what almost everybody in Taiwan is doing right now. Right. I think there are a lot of new rules out now about wearing masks, you know, in um, offices and public transportation and also social distancing rules that we're supposed to follow. Right. So what do you think right. of these rules? I, I think, you know, anything that can reduce the, 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 the chance of infection or the spread of this virus uh, by even a, a percentage point or two, you know, whether it's maintaining more distance between people or wearing a mask, I think I'm all for it. I think it's it's great. Um, you know, as we've said, uh, Taiwan is doing a marvelous job. I think, and it's it's I'm I'm really happy to see it getting more and more credit and notice from around the world for what it's been doing. Um, you know, the media starting to really international media is really starting to notice this, and I think that people are willing to take these measures, hopefully, because if if you see the big difference in Taiwan is that by and large, life has gone on as usual. You know, children are still going to school, people still go to work, there's still traffic on the streets. And and if people can do those things, continue to live their lives, but take these extra measures to reduce the risk of uh, spreading this outbreak, I think it's, I'm all for it. I think it's great. And I, I hope it works. Well, great. Well, Douglas, it's been great speaking with you. We appreciate that um, you shared your experience. And it's so good to know that you you've recovered and that you're doing well. Thank you. And uh, I, I just want to add one thing, and I've said this to so many people. I've said this to my doctors um, and my nurses. I've said this to friends while I was sick and after I was sick. But um, I, I really do think speaking as someone who is, has come, you know, had the coronavirus and come back from it, um, I, I really do feel that um, I would rather be here in Taiwan. Uh, if I had to catch the coronavirus, I would have rather caught it here in Taiwan than anywhere else. And uh, Going through this crisis, I would rather be here in Taiwan than anywhere else, quite literally, and many people agree with me on that. So uh, again, I think Taiwan is doing a marvelous job uh, in a very difficult situation in containing this outbreak. And we thank you for um, sharing, Douglas. So it's been great speaking to you. Thank you, and hope you stay well. Thank you very much. You too. That is Douglas Habecker, an American who lives in Taiwan, who is also Taiwan's 50th case of COVID-19. Habecker is the co-publisher of Compass Magazine, A City Guide for Taizong. He is also the head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Taizong. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination Jilong 1626. In the early 1600s, Spain was still in the middle of its golden age. Spanish culture was flourishing and Spanish rule extended across much of the world. The city of Manila, capital of the Philippines, was one of the empire's prized possessions. Merchants from nearby China came to sell Chinese silks in exchange for silver brought across the Pacific from Spanish Mexico. But all was not well. 
1624, a great enemy set up shop uncomfortably close to Manila on an island called Taiwan. To counter this threat, the Spanish came to Taiwan themselves two years later, setting up a Taiwan colony of their own. Professor Jose Eugenio Borao Mateo has made the study of this short-lived colony his life's work. He teaches in the Spanish department at National Taiwan University, and he's the author of the book, The Spanish Experience in Taiwan, a Baroque ending to a Renaissance endeavor. Over the next few weeks, he'll be telling us about why the Spanish came here and what they did during their brief stay. He'll also tell us about the colony's fall and about his own first-hand experiences digging into this often neglected piece of Taiwan's story. The Dutch had revolted against Spanish rule, and now they were in Asia, carving out their own piece of Europe's lucrative Asian trade. The Dutch blockaded Manila several times, threatening to disrupt the city's trade with China. But news of their colony on Taiwan set off new alarm bells. Stopping the Dutch threat was the main reason for Spain's interest in Taiwan. Still, the island held other attractions too. To a Catholic order called the Dominicans, the north of Taiwan seemed awfully close to two of their objectives, China and Japan. The main reason they came here is because they feel very strong threat from the Dutch. They started in 1600 when they make a blockade of Manila. They thought that to have a spot here in between in Taiwan would be convenient for them. And also the Dominicans, the missionaries were pushing for this adventure because for them was very good occasion to enter for the first time in China and also to ensure the way that they have already towards Japan that was at that moment a real threat. No? In 1626, the Spanish founded their base on the northern tip of Taiwan, on an island in what's now called Zilong Harbor. Professor Borao says that once they arrived, they met two villages of a trading people called the Basai. Both Spanish and Dutch writers note them, but after these Europeans left Taiwan, the Basai disappeared into history. The natives here, they call always the Basai. And it's very interesting because later this tribe is not known again, doesn't appear in the sources, but also it's not only the Spaniards, also the Dutch, they talk very much about the Basai. No? This um, scholar, Peter Kahn, he has made a research on the Basai, and he thinks that they're a kind of commercial network from the eastern area of Taiwan towards the north of Taiwan. It's a special tribe, in my opinion, but uh, in fact, there was not too many people. I mean, this was not overpopulated. There was only a few towns around, and the Spaniards dealt with two in Gilon Harbor, one called Kimauri, another one called Tapari. No? When first meeting these commercially-minded villagers, the Spanish failed to leave a good impression. But things improved after missionaries insisted on compensation for burnt property. Eventually, Kimauri and Tapauri children were able to speak Spanish. I think the relation, of course, at the very beginning was not good, no? in the sense that they were intruders. No? They burned some houses, probably to intimidate them, and they escaped to the mountains. But because of the, the request of the 
at the pressure of the Dominican missionaries, the military authorities assumed the blame for this, and, and they start to pay compensation to the natives for their own houses, no? And the, I mean, not in a single shot, but little by little, different times, because we know that in one moment, when they were not happy with the natives, they said, oh, maybe they don't receive any more to receive this compensation, no? But I think in a few years, they came with good relations because there was a lot of uh, interaction, especially the, the children, native children, they enter in, in the fortress, uh, they speak Spanish very fluently, and the whole town were converted, no? the Kimauri and Tepauri and also Santiago, uh, probably among 1,000 new converts. No? No matter how many local souls the Spanish missionaries converted, the threat from the Dutch, the main reason they were here, still loomed large. When the Spanish first arrived in 1626, the Dutch colony on the southern end of the island was still small. A Spanish armada of sorts was sent southward to wipe it out. Taiwan's weather didn't cooperate. At the very beginning, uh, I mean, the, the main threat was the Dutch, of course, because they have important power, and they can uh, make blockades to Manila. So the Spaniards saw that, and they thought that the best was to destroy this early Dutch post, because at the time, 1627 was very small. No? And the Spaniards felt, because of the weather, no? I mean, it was a very strong typhoon, and they tried again a few months later with another fleet, and they had the same fate. No? So in that case, they just give up. Two attempts, two fleets, two failures. But while they didn't succeed in their mission, these two fleets are interesting to look at. Because the Spanish weren't the only ones fighting on the Spanish side. The 1627 fleet, they have more than 1,000 uh, military personnel. No? They also were supplemented by local warriors, especially from the Pampangan tribes near Manila, in the north of Manila. No? They were very loyal to the Spaniards in, in the Philippines, and they were even proud to serve the Spanish armies. Soldiers from colonized peoples, like the Philippine Pampangans, are part of Taiwan's story, too. The Spanish may have failed to drive the Dutch from Taiwan, but they were able to dig in. At Zilong, they built Fort San Salvador, which Professor Barao says was a serious, large-scale project. It's very interesting the fact that this fort was quite big, quite serious. When they make a project to, to go here to Taiwan, they uh, have an, an ambition there no, to make a, a very big fort, probably the biggest one in the whole Far East. No? 100 meters square, they finish around 36, 37, so in 10 years it was already finished. And some of the, the Chinese, who was coming from mainland China, bring materials to, to work as masons, to construct, etc. No? Spanish authority spread from Jilong, making itself felt across Taiwan's north coast. Meanwhile, Spanish missionaries tried to convert the indigenous people of the area. For example, in Danshui, outside of what's now Taipei, they built a church under the protection of a second Spanish fort. Professor Borao, though, says that their success was limited to a group of nearby villages called Senar, where records show a Catholic procession was held. And being a missionary at the time could be dangerous. 
The 1630s saw some indigenous people turn against the Spanish, and some missionaries were killed in ambushes. Still, despite these setbacks and growing skepticism of the Taiwan colony's usefulness, the governor in Manila kept up his support for the colony and its missionary efforts. The governor in Manila they have a junta kind of big meeting with uh, different people. One of them was the governor Garcia Romero, if I remember well, and he was for keeping the, the existence of the colony, but the other people were more opposing to this idea because in 1636, uh, the killing of the missionaries, a kind of ambush by the natives, that's why they decide soon later to leave the, that place and to concentrate only in Chilon because at least in Chilon they, they were welcome, no? The governors that followed Garcia Romero would not be so enthusiastic about Taiwan. As supplies were axed and soldiers sent back to the Philippines, a colony meant to protect against the Dutch would instead become a weak target for a Dutch army. From trade and the search for a Taiwanese El Dorado to the colony's last stand and fall, there's a lot still left for us to explore. I hope you'll join me and Professor Barao again next week for another journey back into the world of Spanish Taiwan. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to show you how Taiwan responded to the threat of the new coronavirus much earlier than the World Health Organization did. All right, Nellie, we have a minute on the clock. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, go. Okay, this past Saturday, Taiwan's health minister revealed an email that Taiwan sent to the WHO on December 31st. It talks about seven atypical pneumonia cases reported in Wuhan, China. The cases were believed not to be SARS, though it wasn't a direct warning. Officials say that health experts would know that the following phrase implies human-to-human -human transmission. Cases have been isolated for treatment. Taiwan acted on that concern, but the WHO ignored it. As we see from this timeline, on January 1st, Taiwan begins health inspections of passengers from Wuhan, but on the 10th, the WHO does not recommend those inspections. On the 12th, Taiwan sends experts to Wuhan. On the 14th, the WHO said there is no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. On the 20th, Taiwan starts its national response to fight the new coronavirus, but the WHO waited until January 30th to declare a global health emergency. Former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley says the American people have every right to ask the WHO questions. We <laughs> she said, we deserve to know why we didn't listen to Taiwan, but listen to China. All right. Excellent. That's hard to do in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of information in there today. <laughs> now, I did see something very recently. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump has said that he's going to cut funding for the WHO. And I know that the U.S. is one of the largest, if not the largest, That's um, right. sponsor. Um, right? He said that he's going to cut for two or three months pending a review of how the WHO handled the crisis. Now, we don't know if this is going to go through because the U.S. Congress, the Democrats, are against it. There's a lot of criticism from other foreign leaders, even Bill Gates, who was a major donor to the WHO. Yes. But, you know, the WHO should be held accountable, and a lot of people, about a million, um, almost a million, actually have started um, an online petition calling for him to step down. This is the head of the WHO? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they are trying to hold the WHO accountable in different ways, and we'll see how that plays out. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, and that's Taiwan Explained for this week. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, 
Hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. Visit RTI at english.rti.org.tw. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.